0: And uh, chapter twenty-five. We're going to begin reading in verse twelve. Genesis twenty-five, verse twelve. Here's what we read. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar and Edbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nefish, Kedima. These are the sons of Ishmael. These are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. A hundred and thirty-seven years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havila to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This evening we return to our study of the book of Genesis. We ended our study last time before we came back to Romans 3 and 4. We ended our study with the death of, with the death of Abraham which happens at the beginning of chapter 25. So we left off at chapter 25, verse 11. Uh, Over the next several weeks, we will be learning about Abraham's son, Isaac, and particularly about Abraham's grandsons, Esau and mainly Jacob. But before our focus goes to these descendants of Abraham, we need to look first at this other son, whose name is Ishmael. I would submit to you that Ishmael's life and Ishmael's legacy is full of instruction for those with eyes to see. It was God who orchestrated Ishmael's life and all that would take place with his descendants in world history. And those events which our God ordained to take place through Ishmael and his descendants were not meaningless As in everything that God does, He is saying something to all who will listen. So let me briefly remind you about this man called Ishmael. God had come to Abraham and promised that he would have an heir. And that through that heir, all of these glorious promises were going to come true. Knowing that his wife was barren, Abraham had first asked God that his servant, a man named Eliezer, might be counted as his heir and that that through Eliezer his, his, his promises from God would come true. And yet God had said no, that Abraham's heir would be of his own flesh and blood. And so after many years, more than a decade, after God's promise and and Abraham was waiting and waiting for this child to be born to his wife Sarah and this child never came, Abraham finally decided it was time to try and help God out. And so at the prompting of Sarah, he took Sarah's handmaiden, a servant from Egypt named Hagar. And Abraham had a child with her, In this way, he tried to have an heir, the heir through whom the promises of God would come true. But instead, trouble came, and it came immediately. Sarah, whose idea this was in the first place, saw that Hagar was pregnant and immediately became overcome with feelings of hostility and wickedness towards her servants. She began to treat Hagar in an abusive manner. Sarah became angry with Abraham for being willing to go along with this plan. And life became so miserable for Hagar that she eventually fled into the desert. Well, here she was, far from home, pregnant, without any means to survive in a desert environment. And here the angel of the Lord found her and told her that she would indeed give birth to a son and that this son's name was to be called Ishmael, which means God hears. The angel told her that her son would be the father of a multitude, but that he would also be uh, a wild donkey of a man, meaning that he would live an unsettled life, a, a life marked by conflict. At the angel's command, Hagar returned to her mistress, Sarah, and remained there under Sarah's authority for many more years. Abraham was informed by the Lord that Ishmael would not be the son of promise, that the promised heir would come through his wife, Sarah. But it was another 14 years before Sarah actually did conceive and give birth to that son, Isaac, Isaac. Well, sometime later, after Isaac was weaned, Sarah saw Ishmael, now a teenager, a young man, mocking the boy Isaac. And she became so angry at what she had seen that she expelled Hagar and Ishmael from the home. Abraham seems to have had genuine love for his son Ishmael. But God instructed Abraham to let Hagar and to let Ishmael go. God promised to Abraham that Ishmael, though he would never be the son of promise, yet he too would be blessed and there would be a multitude that would come from him. Hagar and Ishmael found themselves again in trouble in the desert, almost at the point of death. And again the angel of the Lord found them and brought help. And he renewed his promise that that a nation would come from this boy Ishmael. Muslim tradition holds that it was Ishmael, not Isaac, that Abraham almost sacrificed at Mount Moriah. They believe, Muslims believe, that it was he and Abraham, Ishmael and Abraham, who first built the Kaaba in Mecca, that shrine which Muslims are supposed to make a pilgrimage to at some point in their life. Muslims believe that when Ishmael and his mother were expelled by Sarah into the desert that the angel of the Lord calls the spring of water to appear and they say it's the same one that still exists today for weary pilgrims on their way to Mecca. Ishmael is seen as the father of the Arabic peoples. Now, biblical history teaches us that it certainly was not Ishmael that was almost sacrificed on Mount Moriah. It was Isaac. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that he and Abraham ever built a shrine in Mecca. The Bible does, however, tell us that Ishmael gave birth to 12 sons who became 12 tribes. And these tribes do appear to be the the ancestors of many of the modern-day Arabic peoples. The other thing that we know from Scripture is that when Abraham died, Isaac and Ishmael did come together. To bury their father. But their descendants were enemies of one another and did not like each other much at all. Now, it might be helpful for me to give you a little reminder concerning the structure of the book of Genesis so that you can kind of see the new section that that we're coming to. Do you see the opening uh, words of verse 12? Do you see those opening words of verse 12? These are the generations of Ishmael. What we are entering into is section 7 of the book of Genesis. You see, the book of Genesis is made up of an introduction and then 10 sections, and each section begins the same way. These are the generations of. They're sometimes called the the Toledo sections because the Hebrew word that begins each section is the same. It's this Toledo, T-O-L-E-D-O-T, when you transliterate it into English. And so each time you see this phrase, these are the generations of, it means that the focus of the book of Genesis is moving to the lineage of of a new character or characters. So I want to walk through this quickly and and show you what I mean. Turn back with me to Genesis 1. And I want to thumb our way from, from Genesis 1 back to Genesis 25 and let you see the different sections of this book. In Genesis 1 we have the introduction, Genesis 1 through Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Now remember, uh, the verses and the chapter numbers were not inspired by God. Our chapter and verse numbers were put in later. And almost every scholar will now tell you that if we could do this over again, chapter 2 would begin at verse 4 of chapter 2. Because those first three verses of chapter 2 actually belong... To chapter one. And then, and then everything changes in, in, in verse four. We enter into the first real section of the book. Do you see the words? These are the generations of. Now, usually, when we enter into a new section of Genesis, we're going to move to focusing on the lineage, the descendants of someone introduced in the last section. Well, in the last section, which was the introduction, all we had was the heavens and the earth. So now we move to the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is how section 1 begins. And section 1 goes through chapter 4. Verse 26 tells us all about the, the creation of human beings for Adam and Eve in the garden and the, 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 descript, the description of their duties there. Uh, we have the covenant of works and the, the, the whole account of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have the serpent and the fall of man. We have the consequences of that fall and Adam and Eve's life and with Cain and Abel and all down through uh, the, the wicked descendants of Cain. And then we come to section 2, chapter 5, verse 1. Do you see it? Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Which means it's not going to be about Adam. It's going to be about the sons of Adam. And in particular, this section focuses on the godly line of Adam that comes from his third son, Seth. Genesis 5 through Genesis 6 verse 8 is all about Seth and his descendants and how they interact with the descendants of Cain, how humanity continues to plummet into wickedness. We meet this uh, man named Lamech, a different Lamech, at the end of chapter 5. He happens to have this son named Noah. And that's what we're just told. There's this Lamech has a son named Noah. Then we come to chapter 6, verse 9. And what do you read? These are the generations of Noah. And so now the focus comes to telling us about the line of Noah and mainly how there is a line of Noah, considering that the whole earth was flooded. How is it that there's this Shem, Ham, and Japheth? How how do they exist? And so all the way through the account of Noah and the ark and the global flood is this section. Well, then the focus moves to the lines of Noah's son. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. This is section 4. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Which means it's not really about Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it's about their sons, their descendants. It's a short section when you get to chapter 11 and verse 10. Chapter 11, verse 10, the focus narrows and begins to concentrate on Shem. And the sons of Shem, these are the generations of Shem. It's the same word every time, Toledo. Each one of these is bringing us to a new focus in the book of Genesis. In verse 27 of Genesis 11, we come to section 6. This is a much longer section than any that's come before. So far in Genesis, it looked like this book is going to be pretty short. Right? These sections have been just two or three chapters and then a new section. Two or three chapters and then a new section. Suddenly we get to section 6 and we read in, in Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah, which means we're going to learn something about the descendants of Terah. Well, does anybody remember who one of the sons of Terah was? Abraham. And then for a long time we stay in section 6. <laughs> and we learn a lot about Abraham. And we learn about all of these important covenants and all that takes place in Abraham's life. And we don't come to a new section until we come to where we are tonight. Genesis 25 and verse 12. That's where we come into this new section, section 7. These are the generations of Ishmael. Meaning the focus of this section is the line of Ishmael, the descendants of Ishmael. Now, by the way... This is a very, very short section. We'll be done with it tonight. All right? We spent months in section 6. Section 7 will be done in about 30 minutes from now. Right? Look at what happens in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And when we get there to section 8, we'll spend again many weeks and months because the last three sections of Genesis, sections 8, 9, and 10, are, again, longer sections. There's the section on the generations of Isaac. Um, There will also be uh, a section on Esau. It's shorter. And then there will be a section on Jacob, and it's longer. And so that's, when you think of Genesis, you should think of a book. If, If you wanted to see an outline of Genesis, you should see an introduction and then 10 sections, some really short and some really long. And tonight we're in section 7. So, before we jump in to kind of seeing the spiritual lessons that we learn from this particular passage, this description of Ishmael's descendants, I want to suggest to you that when we think of Isaac and when we think of Ishmael, we should think about the two contrasting offsprings of Abraham. That is, we have two different sons of Abraham who take two very different paths and whose descendants go into very different directions. The one offspring, Isaac, is the true covenant son. He's the one that was chosen by God. The Messiah will come from him. The other offspring, though still blessed, Ishmael, is outside of the covenant. He has been rejected by God insofar as the Messiah is concerned. Both sons have Abraham's blood pulsing through their veins, but only one is the offspring of promise. I would suggest to you that the lives and the legacies of Isaac and Ishmael give to us an earthly picture of spiritual realities. I want you to think with me now. I know it's kind of you know evening, and we've already had a, one sermon this morning, but I want you to turn your brains on and think about this with me, and it'll kind of make clear, I think, why it's important that we think about this man called Ishmael. In the life and the legacy of Isaac, we have an earthly picture of the blessings that come to the true offspring of Abraham. So in Isaac and his offspring, which is going to be Jacob and Israel, we have an earthly picture, a shadowy picture of the blessings that come to the true children of Abraham. We know from our studies in Romans, as well as from other books in the New Testament, that the true offspring of Abraham are the chosen people of God. They are those who are in the covenant by grace through faith. They are Christians. They are God's people, the ones who will be in heaven. And we can look to Isaac and to his descendants through Jacob and the very nation of Israel itself, and we can see a shadow of the blessings that everyone who is a true son or daughter of Abraham has. For example, when we look to Isaac and his descendants, we see that God gives to them a land flowing with milk and honey. Is that a picture for us of what God does for us, his children? Is he going to give us a land that we might call flowing with milk and honey? Don't we sing about Jordan's stormy banks and crossing over into Canaan? Right? When we read about all that God does and the blessings He gives to Isaac and Jacob and Israel, we're reading of an earthly picture of real blessings that He's giving to us. They had God dwelling in a temple in their midst. We have God dwelling in our midst, in our very souls, as individual temples of God, and in our midst as corporate temple of God. God was Israel's, and uh, God—I'm sorry—God was Israel's God, and they were His people. That's true with us, and in a more sure and eternal way than it was with them. God promised to make Israel a blessing to others, so God is is working through us to bring a real blessing to others. So in other words, when we look at Isaac and Jacob and, and that line that happens through Isaac, we, we see an earthly, shadowy, temporal form of a picture of the blessings, the real blessings that God gives to every true child of Abraham, everyone that's a true child of God, everyone who comes to God by faith. Well, if that's true of Isaac, I would suggest to you that when we look at Ishmael, we have a picture of the person who has Abraham's blood running through his veins, but is not a part of God's saving covenant. That is, when we look at, at what happens to Ishmael and his, his twelve tribes, isn't that interesting? Israel has twelve tribes, Ishmael has twelve tribes. Right? God is with one, God is not with the other. Both belong to Abraham. And so when we contrast, we see the difference between one who is truly blessed, and it's a picture for all of those who are God's people, and one who is, while blessed numerically, misses out on all the other blessings. You see, here is a picture of the true spiritual condition of so many Jews in Jesus' day who were descendants of Abraham, indeed descendants of Isaac, but were not really in the covenant They thought like the Pharisees. They said, oh, we're children of Abraham. And because we're children of Abraham, we're automatically going to have all the blessings of God. But if they had paid more attention to Ishmael, they would have seen that there's more to being in the covenant than just having Abraham's blood. John the Baptist and Jesus and the Apostles all taught that there's only one way to be in the true covenant of grace. It's to have real salvation. It's to have faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is not insignificant that Ishmael was a circumcised man. He had the mark of the son of Abraham. And yet that mark signified nothing about his soul and in no way guaranteed to him that he was in the covenant. Indeed, as far as the Messiah was concerned, the Messiah's line, he was not. And so, this was a picture. I would submit to you that Ishmael, a very real person in history, a very real person with real descendants, represents before us the rejected, unbelieving offspring of Abraham. All right, with that in mind, let's look at our verses. and I want to draw out three lessons Three lessons. First, we learn that the blessings of multiplication and numerical fruitfulness would come. In other words, the fact that Ishmael's line was the rejected line. The fact that Ishmael's line was the line that, that God had not chosen for the lineage of the Messiah did not change the fact that he made them into a great nation. God was faithful to his promise. He blessed and and, and multiplication came. Ishmael did become a great nation. But just because they were a great nation didn't mean that God was with them. God was with Israel. God says to Israel in the Old Testament, you of all the nations in the world have I chosen to be with. Ishmael was an unchosen nation. And so it would have been very foolish for unbelieving Jews to say in Jesus' day, but God has multiplied us. God has made us many. Therefore, we know that we have His covenant blessings. No. God's multiplication of Israel, which was a blessing since every child is a gift from God, was no guarantee that Israel was right with God. After all, He blessed Ishmael and they were not right with God. Ishmael and his line were the unchosen ones, and yet they multiplied. The second lesson we learn here, and I think it's probably the most important one in these verses, is that there is no real peace for those who are not the covenantal offspring of Abraham. There is no real peace for those who are not the, the chosen offspring of Abraham. Look at verse 16. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. These two words, villages and encampments, refer to transient, non-permanent settlements. Villages were settlements without walls. They were unprotected. These were not established towns. Encampments are camps. They're a place you set up and settle for a while, and then you pack things up and you move on again. In other words, Ishmael's descendants were a nomadic, an unsettled people, just like the angel of the Lord had promised Hagar they would be. This is a picture of restlessness. It's a picture of people who have no real home. It's a picture of a people who are lacking security and lacking peace. And this is the condition of all of those who are not Abraham's covenantal offspring. This is a picture of those who, who, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they had Abraham's blood pulsing through their veins, but they did not believe. They were not in the covenant. And so they didn't have the blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey coming their way. They didn't have the blessings of being the temple of God. They didn't have the blessings of, of being able to say, God is my God and I am His. They didn't have the, the blessing of being able to say, God is going to use me to be a blessing to others. No, that's only given to those people who are the true children of Abraham. Those who are His children by faith. Had we continued in Romans, rather than coming to Genesis tonight, our very next verse, Genesis 5 verse 1 is this? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, security, a settled and a stable soul. These are the gifts that come with belonging to God. But those who do not believe do not have this peace. All of those people in Jesus' day, who had Abraham's blood running through their veins, but lacked Abraham's faith pulsing in their hearts, they were like Ishmael and his descendants. They were restless. They were wandering. The Bible would call such people lost. We could consider those that we know who grew up in a Christian home and yet have never believed on Christ themselves. They may deceive themselves thinking that they're okay because their mother was a Christian or their father was a Christian or their grandmother was a Christian. But having their blood in your veins without having their faith in your heart will do you no good. Those people will never have the peace that passes understanding. Rather than dwelling in Canaan, they must live a life of wandering from, from one thing to another thing to another thing. They're always on this endless search for, for true, genuine, lasting peace. And there's always the need for something more. Isaiah 26.3 says to God, You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Who does God give peace to? To the one who trusts in Him. Isaac and his descendants are a picture of the people who truly trust God. That is, they are blessed with all of these incredible blessings. Ishmael and his descendants are a picture of the people who, even though they have Abraham's blood, they do not have faith. They miss out on the blessings. Perfect peace is the gift that God gives to those who trust Him. There is not leftover enmity between us and God. He is at perfect peace with us. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, God is at perfect peace with you. We have grounds, therefore, for perfect peace in our souls. We have a basis for perfect peace in our relationships with one another. And there will be a day when we truly live in the fullness of perfect peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and of peace, there shall be no end. So Ishmael and his descendants are a picture of the unsettled soul. They're a picture for us of those who who have Abraham's blood but are no part of Abraham's covenant. And then third and finally, we learn from these verses that the non-covenantal offspring of Abraham will be the enemies of the true offspring. You see, though Isaac and Ishmael were brothers, the descendants of Ishmael would not cease to persecute the descendants of Isaac. The twelve tribes listed for us in these verses are the future enemies of Israel. This is why verse 18 says that, that he, Ishmael, settled over against his kinsmen. It isn't speaking just of Ishmael as an individual. It's speaking of Ishmael's line. Maybe the best example of this is the second tribe in the list. Do you see it? It's called Kedar. The Kadarites, which would become the most powerful, the largest Ishmaelite tribe, would be true enemies of Israel. The word Kadar means dark or black. It's used in the Song of Solomon, for example. Song of Solomon 1, verse 5, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. I am like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Kedar is mentioned often in the major prophets. It's mentioned by Isaiah, mentioned by Jeremiah, mentioned by Ezekiel. In Jeremiah, there's a specific oracle of judgment from God against the Kadarites. In one place, when God is speaking to Israel and shaming Israel for her wickedness, God tells His people, He says, travel to Kedar and see for yourselves that the things you've been doing aren't even do- being done there. The point being, they are a wicked people. The Kedarites are enemies of me, your God. And yet you are being so wicked that the things you're doing, you wouldn't even find being done there. It was a very shameful thing for Israel to learn that they were acting more sinfully than these descendants of Ishmael. It is interesting that already in Genesis, we've met Abraham's brother, Nahor. And Nahor had sons who became twelve tribes. Later, we're going to meet Esau. And Esau's descendants, the Edomites, are going to be made up of twelve tribes. In the book of Genesis, we learn of the future of the ancient world of the Middle East, that there's going to be 12 tribes of Nahor, 12 tribes of Ishmael, 12 tribes of Edom, and oh yes, 12 tribes of Israel. And all of those other tribes are going to hate the 12 tribes of Israel. All of those other tribes are going to be the enemies of God's people. They will fight against Israel. And yet, it is through Israel that the Messiah would come and make it possible for people from every one of those other tribes to eventually be saved and to be a part of God's saving covenant. The implication of all this is that it should not surprise us when in the Gospels and Acts we see Jews, offspring of Abraham, actively persecuting and killing those other Jews who happen to have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We see kinsmen turn on kinsmen, we have Paul watching as Stephen, another Jew, a fellow Jew, a kinsman, is being stoned to death for believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. One's in the covenant. One, at least as far as he knew it at that time, was not. Right? The children of Abraham who are not in the covenant hate and act violently towards those who are. You see, the story of Ishmael and his line and Isaac and his line is an earthly, shadowy pattern. A pattern that, that we see come to fruition in the New Testament. It's a spiritual pattern. Namely, that those who are not Abraham's covenant offspring, his true offspring, will hate the ones who are. Another way of putting this to make it just much more simple is this. Unbelievers will always be at enmity with believers. Unbelievers hate our values. They may sometimes talk or act like they don't, especially here in the Bible Belt South, but dig deep enough and their hostility will show itself. Unbelievers hate our God. When we suggest that He is sovereign over them, when we suggest that they are obligated to live according to His ways and not according to theirs? You see, the pattern of history remains the same. The children of God should expect persecution and hatred from those who are not the children of God. And yet, even as we should expect to be persecuted by them, we are their only hope. Our response when we are persecuted is to be one of peace and love, sharing the gospel, calling them to faith. Many a person came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because they watched a Christian being martyred for his or her faith. Paul watched the stoning of Stephen and probably even heard when Stephen cried out for God to not hold this sin against them as they threw the stones at him. Are we really to believe that that did not have anything to do with Paul's later conversion? Do we think that didn't have an effect on Paul? Watching this man die boldly as a Christian. Didn't the Lord say to Paul on the road to Damascus, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, seeming to imply that there was already some kind of a struggle going on in Paul's heart? You see, we are not to be surprised by hostility, by persecution. And we're to respond with love. And we're to respond with truth. And so as if, if, if we had been living in Jesus' day and if we were Jews who were Abraham's children and we had, we had His blood running through our veins and yet we didn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we could look to Ishmael and we could learn a lot of lessons that would have taught us that we need to believe or there is no guarantee that the promises are ours. But let me make a few closing reflections for us. First, we cannot help but note the sovereignty of God in the way that He ordered human history. Are we really to believe that it is a coincidence that Nahor, Ishmael, Edom, and Israel all had 12 sons, which all became 12 tribes, which all would have interaction on the stage of redemptive history throughout the ancient Middle East? I mean, wouldn't that be a strange coincidence? I don't believe in coincidences, and I don't think it is. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus chose 12 apostles, by the way. <laughs> All of these things seem to point to the reality that there is a God who is ordering these things, that there is a God who is organizing human history in accordance with His sovereign will. 24 hours in a day, 12 in the morning, 12 in the evening. Um, in Revelation, the number 144, 12 times 12, is meant to represent the, the, the perfect... Uh, bringing in of the people of God. The point of this isn't to get you looking for numerical codes in the Bible, but it is to note the obvious that these patterns point to a pattern maker. These patterns show that there is a design and purpose, not only in creation, but in the actual unfolding of human history itself. Second, I think we must also note the sovereignty of God, not just in the unfolding of history and in the lessons that He teaches through the way history happens, but I think we must also note the sovereignty of God in salvation. You see, the picture of Ishmael being rejected and Isaac being chosen as the son of promise is meant to point us towards God's electing ways. God chose to have a covenant relationship with the tribes of Israel while choosing not to have a covenant relationship with the tribes of Ishmael. Why? Was it because Isaac was a much better son? Is it because Israel as a nation was going to be morally superior to Ishmael as a nation? Were the descendants of Isaac intellectually superior, morally superior, culturally superior? Why did God choose to have a covenant with this son of Abraham and his descendants and not to enter into the same covenant with this son and these descendants? You see, before Isaac or Ishmael had been born, it had already been determined by God that one would be used to bring about the Messiah and to bring the gospel to the world and the other would not. And the reason I say that this is important and that we have to see God's electing ways in this passage related to salvation is that this is exactly what Romans chapter 9 does. You see, in Paul in Romans chapter 9 draws our attention back to Ishmael and Isaac. And he teaches this very doctrine of divine election from the account of Isaac and Ishmael along with the account of Jacob and Esau. For example, Paul says in Romans 9, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, Paul says not every child of Abraham is a child of Abraham. What do you mean by that? Well, of course, all the children of Abraham are physical children of Abraham. But he says they're not all the true children of Abraham. The elect, the, the offspring, the ones who will be saved, the ones who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses Isaac and Ishmael as his example of God's electing ways. He goes on to explain that it is the children of promise. Those who are in God's covenant by grace, those who are the true children of Abraham, who are the true people of God. He points to Jacob and to Esau and reminds us that Jacob was chosen by God and that Esau was rejected and that this happened before either was born, before either had done anything good or bad. Now, we're going to come back to this next week because it really is is more in play next week. But, But for now, we must recognize that God is sovereign in ordering human history. God is sovereign in the unfolding of all human history, including ultimately who is in the covenant of salvation and who is not. And so if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are in the covenant of salvation by faith in Jesus This means the thing, this is what it means for you. You have been given a great privilege, a great grace that you and I don't deserve. And it should cause us to be very humble and to be very thankful. Well, finally, and I think primarily, this passage should cause us to reflect on the sad condition of those who will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage reminds us of people who do not have real peace in their hearts. This passage reminds us that that such people are enemies of God and enemies with God's people. This is who we were at one time. It was only the grace of God that brought us to faith and, and changed this in us. We used to be a restless people, wandering from here to here to here, trying to find satisfaction in work or in family or relationships or whatever before we found the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so now it should be our great desire that others would experience what we've experienced. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We should long to see others experience that same kind of peace. Amen? Okay, let's pray.